Your move, creep. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. The only thing I know how to do. It's a good-looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord. Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. Okay, guys, I know I say this in every episode, but we have got a great one today because we will be talking about the oldest film that we've talked about so far. This is this is going to be the oldest one, one of the most significant films that we've talked about on this podcast. This movie is kind of a big deal. In last week's episode, we talked about like we wanted to do a film from a prominent black filmmaker, you know, uh, to kind of cap off the Black History Month. Um, we've done some films by black filmmakers before or one done one scary movie, which was, I think, a great film to revisit. But we wanted to go back again. And you're like, well, who should we talk about? Because I know you want us to talk about Spike Lee. I'd love to talk about Spike Lee. But I was like, there's some other filmmakers that I kind of want to talk about. You know, it's John Singleton. Right. I know he passed away a few years ago. And I really wanted to talk about some of his earlier works. And I was like, well, let me really let's figure out. Let's look at other black filmmakers. Right. And not contemporary ones. Right. Like Jordan Peele. Ava DuVernay, like older, like, you know, like really go back to the history of it. And Austin actually suggested someone and he might be one of the first prominent black filmmakers. And we're like, yeah. fuck it. Let's just talk about it. Like, like, like this make, let's make this a history episode all the way through. Yeah, this is this movie is over a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it celebrated its century anniversary, whatever that the centennial. Two years ago, meaning this film came out in 1920. Yes, this the movie is called Within Our Gates by Oscar Michaud. I've never seen this movie before. I didn't even know it existed until I went to the um, Academy Museum in Los Angeles. Uh, we were there to see like the Studio Ghibli, Studio Ghibli exhibit. And, you know, the, you, there's no like... You get tickets for the museum, you can see the whole museum, right? So I went in to see all the different floors and stuff. And then there is this one uh, for like this old, like silent film, silent film maker. And I was reading his story on the glass, like, you know, how it's preserved and everything. Because it's the actual transcripts from way back when saying this movie will not be shown here because of race riots. We're deeply concerned about something, something, something. And then... I was like so interested and curious about this thing. I guess I was leaning on the glass and someone came and yelled at me. Not like yelled at me, but like, hey, don't do that. I'm like, oh, oops. I like a little. Well, kid. they called your attention. Called my attention. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, it's, <laughs> and everybody looked at me for a second. So that was that was nice. Well, no, I mean, and I, I went to the museum, too. And I in Austin, when he was telling me, he was like that they were he felt kind of like a little like, you know, like they were picking on him or something. Not picking on I me. Mean, they just like they they were like, hey, don't do that. They like yelled at me. Yeah. But I mean, I had I had been there a few days before and 
I saw the exact same thing. You know, I I saw that little section. It's like in the second floor. Yeah, it's like right next to the Bruce Lee thing. There are sections of that second floor that are dedicated to like specific filmmakers or like specific films. Like they have one for Citizen Kane. They have one for Martin Scorsese's uh, frequent collaborator, Thelma Schoon. I can't actually pronounce her name, but I think it's Thelma Schoonmaker, who's his frequent editor. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yes. she's worked with him, I think, on all of his films. They have a little section dedicated to her. They actually have, like, the editing station that she used for a long time when she edited on film. They have a, uh, oh, what's the what's the uh, cinematographer? The, um, the Chivo, Emmanuel Lubinsky. They have a little section dedicated to him. So it's really cool. And they had a section for Oscar, um, how do you say his last name? Michaud. Michaud. They had a little section for Oscar Michaud as well. And like you, I had never heard about this filmmaker. I couldn't remember him. Or I, I mean, maybe I was never taught him. I couldn't remember him. And I was looking at his sections and everything looked old. The books, the pages, the posters, flyers, the production notes. And people were kind of like taking pictures of it. They were touching the glass and they were like, yeah, you can't. Sorry, guys, you can't be doing that. And I saw it with multiple people. <laughs> like, like, uh, like, I was there for a while, and I think I saw like at least five people, like, you know, get told, "Hey, you can't, can't take pictures of yeah. it, can't lean on the glass." Like, this is really ancient stuff. And I mean, yeah, it's this film is over is a, over a hundred years old, and that dude was working for a few years, so you're looking at hundred hundred year old documents. But his story was really incredible. It was really great and fascinating. And I was, and I think you suggesting this filming film was incredible. I think it was a great choice. Thanks. So I don't also know anything about this movie. I've never seen it. All, all I know is that the the letter, it sounded like this movie was super controversial, mm-hmm. right? And it would it, it would ignite like race riots and stuff. And I'm like, I don't think they said this about Birth of a Nation that came out five years before. And listeners, if you don't know what Birth of a Nation is, Birth of a Nation is one of the first feature-length movies. It's also a movie where the KKK are the good guys. They are the heroes. They are the writers of Rohan, basically. Yeah. Um, Very racist movie. Five years later, um, this movie, Within Our Gates, comes out, which is about uh, lynching and racism and stuff. But it's not from that, like perspective of oh the kkk are gonna save us all you know it's it's some say that this this film is like a response to birth of a nation look there's no denying just how significant a film like birth of a nation is just because i mean before then you know films were kind of um, they i mean the kind of basis that we have for hollywood blockbusters film, film contemporary films is really kind of harkens back to birth of a nation you know what i mean like you have the kind of three acts because before that you had like the the Lumi- like you had um short like 20 minute movies yeah like you had uh i think the Lum- the lumiere brothers who did like short little documentaries you had george millet me 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 millet you'll get it well, watch hugo from martin <laughs> scorsese he- <laughs> He's a character in that. But you had George Millet, who was, but he did like a bunch of surreal, magical, magical type of filmmaking. But these were really short. But Birth of a Nation was that film that was a feature length story, you know, kind of the way we see them now. So it was a significant film, but it's racist as fuck. I mean, 
Yeah. The KK Clay. But back then, people were like, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They're like clapping at it. Woodrow Wilson, you know, the president. Big fan of this movie. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, hey, man. I mean, this is what we do here. We talk about shit and whether it's aged or not. Birth of a Nation has not aged at all. Uh, it has not nope. aged well at all. But there is a significant history attributed to it. But within our gates, as far as what I'm hearing from Austin, is a response to that. I am very intrigued about that. And this is the one that people were like, oh, we're going to we're going to start race wars. You know, this is the one that was banned from theaters. This is the one that was lost to history. In fact, the reason that we're able to watch this movie right now is because part of the reel was recovered in Spain. That's the only reason we have this movie that we're we'll, we're able to watch this movie for free because, you know, public domain and stuff. But it's because somebody found it. You know, meanwhile, Birth of a Nation, like we've never not had Birth of a Nation. You know what I mean? No, we screened it in college. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, we you, you've had we've had that access to that movie forever. You know, I'm sure it was mm-hmm. at local blockbusters everywhere just because it is a big movie. You know what I mean? Funny that you mentioned that, like, Birth of a Nation wasn't an issue, you know, but like, you know, within our gates, having an actual black cast directed by a black filmmaker, you know, is seen as like a... About racism from the perspective of black people. It's like a riot starter. Because I always feel like, if that happens kind of today too, where it's just like... It is happening today. Yeah, where you'll have like, you know, people protesting, like a group of white people protesting vaccines or whatever, and it's like, oh, you know, they're... They're fighting for freedom, you know, it's uh, it's their right, you know, whatever, yada, yada, yada. And then you have black people kind of protesting police brutality, all these instances of racism, prejudice. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't. The looting, the the murders that are going to happen. Oh, there's schools across the country that are removing certain books. Some of our kids are, are not going to be allowed to learn how racist this country is, which is wild. I mean, it is a weird time period. I mean... Ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away. It's so dumb, right? And 100 yeah. years later, 102 years later, we are still dealing with these problems. But the film, thankfully, has been... Uh, historians have gone back and talked about this and spoken about this movie. And they have, like, the Library of Congress has put it in their kind of collection of relevant films, historically culturally relevant film so it's a good thing and that's why we're able to watch it nowadays you know and learn about it too because again i we watched birth of a nation in college i don't i don't think i've seen an oscar uh oscar film or i don't oscar michelle michelle yeah you can't even say his name you caught me (laughs) oscar michelle i don't even know if i learned about him in college to be fair though i did fall asleep a lot in college so they might have spoken about him and I just missed him because I was falling asleep. I fell asleep during Birth of a Nation, too. Movies long as fuck. No, but yep. I, I'm very excited. And from what I read, there was a lot of controversy in that man's life. A lot of controversy, you know, outside of just trying to get these films made. Right. Especially in a very racist time. Like, yes. Five years before. The the KKK were the heroes of a, of a movie that was beloved. Imagine a black filmmaker <laughs> trying to make a movie, trying to make make a movie. Period. Right. And Oscar Michaud. So imagine all the problems that this man had to go through trying to like make the film, trying to have the film screamed, screened. 
And I mean, and he also was at the end of a lot of controversy from black people because in his films, from what I read, he wanted to portray black people in all their shades, like in all the possible roles, in all the possible roles. So, for example, like black people in Hollywood for the longest time were what were they? They were the they were the villains. They were um, maids. minstrel characters i mean just the worst stereotypes right but that was the role that black people were in oscar Mishaw said no i want them to be the main characters but i also want them to be the villains and i want them to be successful and i also want them to be greedy and villainous and ambiguous he wanted all shades of black people represented and some black people said well you know this one character look we love what you're doing but this one character this black guy the villain he's horrible you can't you can't have that. That makes us look bad. So not only having to fight just racism in general, but he also felt got a lot of pushback from black people. So damn, Oscar was just fighting the battle at both in two fronts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, damn, that, that man had like a struggle for reals. Mm-hmm. It's insane. But I'm really excited to visit this to visit this film. You know, and really yeah. see it from 102 years in the future, like those eyes. Yeah. How much how much has changed? Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking uh, not as much as we'd like to to think, not as much as we like to tell ourselves. I think in terms of details, I think we've grown a lot. We, we've made huge advancements. Yes, our films are in color now. Well, no, I mean, culturally, <laughs> technologically, I mean, 102 years, a lot has changed, but it is still the same struggle. It is still the same fight. It just looks different. It's in technicolor now, but I'm curious to see how this film has aged. And I'm curious to see the similarities with like a story like this, could a story like this happen now? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm not too familiar with the story. So I know nothing about it. I know nothing about it either. So I'm like, oh, this, perfect. So I'm like, this is a story that is only set in 1920, and the struggles that the characters go through are only like a 1920 thing. But I don't think that's nope. the case. I think <laughs> I don't think that's the case. I think some of the things that the characters went through there then. Are totally capable now, but I want to know to what extreme. Do you know what I mean? To see how how has the story aged, and to learn more about Oscar uh, Mishaw. You know. Yes, I. Uh, the thing I remember the most was the name name of the movie, and being yelled at at the museum. That's about <laughs> it. But that was enough. All right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it sucks being yelled at, but the guy, the the person there was trying to protect history, and you know what? I I still remember the name, so I got I got something out of it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, (laughs) look, man, neither of us know anything about document preservation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about protecting documents. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, look, have you seen Uncut Gems? No. In the beginning of the film. uh, Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Garnett visits uh, Adam Sandler's jewelry shop and he's leaning on the glass and Adam Sandler tells him, don't lean on the glass. You're going to break it. Kevin Garnett accidentally does it again. You know, he he he's not, you know, conscious that he's doing it. He's not doing it to be dickish. Adam Sandler reminds him again, hey, careful with the glass. Third third time, Kevin Garnett does it again. Glass breaks, gets everywhere. 
that's what they were trying to do. That's what that that person was trying to. He was preventing a KG. Yeah. He was preventing a uncut gem scenario. Yeah, except KG's a, a millionaire, and I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, and also, I mean, I guess little minor sponsorship. If you guys haven't been to the Academy Museum, I recommend going. It's beautiful. The, the, there, it's so cool. There's so much to look at. I I spent the entire day there and I only got through two floors. I didn't I barely got to see the Studio Ghibli section. Like, I just walked through it because they were like, hey, we got to oh get we got to get everyone out of here. But I, I those that first floor, like I went through it reading everything, like every little section I read. And the I, I kind of had to fast track through the um, Oscar winners. Just because that there was so much to read, you could find that online. Exactly, you know, but the stuff like with the Oscar Mishaw, the the Bruce Lee thing, all the stuff like in there, and the Studio Ghibli stuff is not stuff you'll you'll be, have access to. What otherwise, I I, I have the the year pass, so I'm like I'll I'll go again. Yeah, I'll be able to make it through. They had a beautiful Wizard of Oz section. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a beautiful museum. I recommend going. Yes, it's so cool. And you'll be able to see some of the actual documents from Oscar Mishaw and uh, kind of get Just a don't lean on the glass. Yeah, don't lean on the glass. It'll be fine. <laughs> no, but I'm excited to watch this film. Uh, this movie actually does not have any audio. Like, it I, is a silent movie. But it is a silent movie all the way through. Like, there's no music. We should be able to find a version with music, though, right? Online when we watch. Well, we could try, but I know that. During the silent film era, uh, it wasn't a speakeasy. It was like a, it was like theaters, but they'd have they'd be playing live music. So there'd be like an actual piano player watching the film and playing the 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 sheet music that was given to him, and he'd be playing along. Without it, you just have an image, uh, you know, a film, but with no audio. So we're gonna try to find the film with audio, but. There's a chance we could see this without audio, without anything. So I'm I'm really curious. This is going to be interesting. Yeah. 102 years old, man. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Woo! Do you want to know what else came out in 1920? Yes. Hit me with it. All right. So box office for 1920 is very limited because you know, they didn't really keep track of this kind of stuff. And if they did, it's probably lost. Or we don't have access to it because we're not historians. But this is what I do have access to. Wikipedia.org. <laughs> um, number one at the 1920s box office was something called Way Down East. And then number two was Over the Hill to the Poor House. Hmm. Number three, I guess they're tied, Passion and The Mark of Zorro. Is it the same as the Mask of Zorro? Yes. It's the, it's the same thing. So Zorro is over 102 years old. Oh, okay. And I think we're getting a new one, too, right? Oh, are we? I'm pretty sure we are. We're always getting a new <laughs> Zorro. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Calgary also came out. It's a oh, German film. I like that one. Yeah, that I, one's cool. I, that's the one I've seen. Yeah, I've seen that one. Also coming out, there's one more that I saw that came out. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde also came out this year. Okay. Those are the ones that I recognize, at least. Okay. Yeah. And Within Our Gates, yeah. I can't say I've seen too many of those. I think, I, I know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because, 
you know, the story. Yeah, uh, and if you haven't seen The Cabinet of Caligari, you've probably seen somebody reference it in some way. I actually really like that film. I, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like it's... It's very surreal, like you're in a nightmare. Even like the homes look weird. Yeah, German expressionism is a dope mm-hmm. genre, you know? Because the houses are like really oddly shaped, the sets, you know, the, the film is tinted in different colors, like green and blue. You know, like Birth of a Nation had that like orange tint for the most part, as as, as I can remember. You know, that like replicates kind of like a, a sunny day or something. But Cabinet of Caligari is like green and blue and i think some shots were purple really cool we, we should definitely talk about a german expressionism expressionist film in the future mm-hmm. uh, but i'm excited for within our gates so let's tell people where to find this movie if you want to find within our gates the easiest way that i know of is to go on wikipedia.org and they have an external link to the Internet Archive version of Within Our Gates. You can watch the whole movie there. You can watch the whole movie at AllMovie. Yeah, AllMovie.com. It's on there as well. It's on IMDb. But it is a silent movie. So if you don't hear anything, you're probably watching the right movie. <laughs> <laughs> this film is only an hour and 19 minutes. So it's not even the full two hours. So again, you know, look, we we say this all the time. You know, uh, some of these films are easier to rewatch than others, right? This might be one of the most difficult films for most people to rewatch because it is an old, old film. The styles are very different. You watch this and it's like, wow, I am watching something very different. But again, you know, I Austin and I always say this. Sometimes it's just best to go out and give something a chance. Do you know what I mean? Just it's an hour and 20 minutes. Just, you know, watch a bit of history right here. You, mm-hmm. You're literally seeing a man shape the future around a certain tr- trying to change the narrative before your eyes. And you know, look, man, it's not as easy to watch as Norbit or, or uh, no, not Norbit, like uh, Transformers. I would say easier to watch than Norbit <laughs> or like Transformers or like a Marvel film, you know, but hey, like. Give it a chance. You don't know what you're going to get out of it unless you take the time to watch it. So that's our recommendation. Check it out. It's free. Check it out and come back and listen to what we have to say. All right. We'll see you in one minute. Right. And the film centers around a young woman and her efforts to raise money for a private school uh, in the deep south. And so she travels up north to Boston, uh, to look for benefactors for the campus, and we sort of follow her from there. Yes, I mean, the actress Evelyn Prier, um, she was kind of like, you know, his leading lady. She was in a, a, about eight films, I believe. And so, yes, at the time, you know, she's playing a character, Sylvia, Land- Sylvia Landry, and um, she's an educator. And at that time, you know, women like Sylvia, it was respectable to be a teacher. and. At the time, we're talking about 1920, so we're not that far removed from the Civil War and Reconstruction. And so there was a movement to uplift the race through education, and so she very much represents that. And at the time, she was the most famous black actress in America, in the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. We have just finished watching Within Our Gates, directed by Oscar Michal from... Uh, 1920. It is our first time watching the movie. 
this might be the first movie we that neither of us have seen, right? Is it? No, we never saw The Beast. Oh, that's right. Okay. In, oh, that's right. Yeah, that was recommended to us by a listener. He emailed yes. you. Okay, Someone so, who's very passionate about that movie, which we 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 were passionate about movies. We so. liked. I I thoroughly liked the film. Um, oh yeah. And honestly, and it it like it made me like learn about stuff. How's learn about some Russian history and Russia's in the news right now? It's kind of. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny because I definitely learned a lot about Russia's involvement in the conflict, and mm-hmm. yeah, and you know, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking about that. Uh, as the news has been rolling in. Yeah. And so with the fact that you mentioned it, it's like, oh, I wasn't the only one. Okay. I don't think what happens in the film is directly related to the Ukraine, but I just, you know, Russian conflicts. I was just thinking about that more and more. Yeah. And, and this movie, this movie, it, it also kind of forced me to like learn a little bit more about some history that I'm not as familiar with as I would like to be. But now I am a little bit more familiar with it. So. You know, if you when we go and watch these movies that we know nothing about that were made for an audience that, you know, from the 1920s, you know, and we want to like actually like try to appreciate the film, it kind of forces you to go back and look at what was going on back then. What kind of environment did this movie come out in, you know, and it, it, it makes you learn a lot of things. And for me, like it's easy to remember movies and now I'll associate this movie with all the stuff that I've learned. Yeah, the two films that neither of us have seen have been really educational. Learned a lot about the conflict in The Beast. And I learned a lot about Oscar Mishaw and kind of the environment that he was making films in. And I actually pulled out my history book, my, my film history book from, my, from the 101 series, which you took as well. And there were only three pages in that textbook that mentioned Oscar Mishaw. Can I ask you a a, a question? Go for a follow up question. Mm-hmm. How many pages uh, did Birth of a Nation take up? Oh, you know, actually, you know what? I have the book in hand. I have the book in hand. Let me check the end, the index. Okay, to be fair, roughly three pages as well. Birth of three a Nation pages. sixty one, African American and. Road showing one forty eight three oh eight okay, but I'll I'll say this. Um, obviously, this textbook is a general film history, like it covers silent era Hollywood, golden Hollywood. It covers different uh, countries. Uh, we, I mean, we screened Birth of a Nation. We talked about Birth of a Nation. We, I've never even heard of Within Our Gates or The Homesteader or Body and Soul. We might have covered those films. To, to be to be fair, I was a terrible student. Like, I fell asleep a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, I have gone on the podcast saying that I have slept through multiple movies. Um, <laughs> so, I fell asleep a lot. I eventually watched everything again. But, so I don't want to, you know, say that. They didn't teach us Oscar Mishaw, even though they might have. But it was very little, which is really you interesting. Remember, you remember Birth of a Nation, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, Birth of a Nation is one of those things that because of how influential that film was, it just kind of, you know, it's seared into your mind. So even if you've never seen Birth of a Nation, you've probably heard of it, you know. But um, I learned about Oscar Mishaw, we talked about this, from the Academy Museum. 
And reading about his story, it's incredible. And actually sitting down and watching Within Our Gates, his second feature film, it was pretty great. It It, it is cool to watch these black and white films, right? And yeah. not from like just a strictly educational standpoint, because when it when you're in a classroom sitting down, forced to watch it, you kind of tune out or there's something just boring about it. But like being in yeah. my room feet up you know i've got my snackies watching it there's it's like um it's like i'm just watching a regular movie you know like yeah you 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 get over the fact that it's a silent movie pretty Mm -hmm. quickly because it's still telling a story with moving pictures Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of twists in the movie right yeah so 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 actually how did you feel about the film i really i really liked it um there's some stuff that happens that's like wait what? How did we get here? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it, you, you have to, to realize that some of these scenes are like lost to history, you know? Mm-hmm. And this the conditions that this movie was made in was like, we only have one take to do this. You know what I mean? Oh, you and can you tell. can't like yeah. and you can't like all right, we shot that. Let's let's go back and see how it looks. It's film. You can't do that. No. <laughs> so there's some scenes where it's like I don't know what's happening and I don't know if it's because of the quality of the film or if it was just shot like in less than ideal conditions. But, you know, it it does tell a story and I can overlook those things, you know. And then there's 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 only like one section of the movie where I was just like, uh, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. it's, it's at the very, very end when I'm like, hold up. And I actually had to do some follow-up research about to see what he was talking about. Are you talking about Dr. Vivian? Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I agree. There are issues that I have with the film, right? Uh, some things that I kind of figured, oh, this is what he's going to do. And then he never followed up with it. And I was like, oh, like you, oh, you missed that. You know what I mean? But it's really just in hindsight. You know what I mean? I mean, it's been over... A hundred years since this movie's came out, come out. Yeah, we. I mean, the way we tell stories has drastically improved, like in term on mm-hmm. the screen. And mm-hmm. Michelle did not have the same tools that we do. You know, I don't know if they had like the three act structure, act one, act two, act three. You know, he. They just. I think it was just more like how you write a novel, right, or a short story, and they just kind of wrote it in that way. So there are so many conventions, screenwriting conventions that we know now that sometimes will enhance a story or kind of elements of a story that you'll need, that a writer needs. You know what I mean? Like a film noir, yeah. you need a femme fatale, uh, elements like that. But Michelle wasn't working with that stuff. He really just had the films that were out at the time, like Birth of a Nation, and he had his own writing sensibilities because he was a writer first. So in on that merit, it's it's engaging. It's an engaging film. I was definitely oh, yeah. wondering like what's gonna happen. There were a lot of twists and turns. And was the, it the way that the characters were portrayed were like very uh, humanistic? I think like, mm-hmm. it felt very authentic, more so than some other silent films that I've seen. I think these characters are multi-layered, good and bad, yeah. and there there's this huge gray area and. They're not always acted the best, I'll say that. But you get what he's going for. You get what he's doing. It doesn't carry that same, like, fake 
presentation that some other silent films have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It seems a bit more grounded in reality. And I mean, that's what he was trying to go for, you know? Um, he was trying to show what life like, what life was like for black Americans in the North, in the cities, in the South, uneducated, educated, religious, non-religious, you know, and this is just one film. He, he did this with a lot oh, yeah. of work. It's His- so, it's so ambitious. I feel like if you remade the movie, it, it would be an Oscar contender. It has that like very dramatic sensibility you know what i mean where it's like (gasps) you know um yeah it's it's suspenseful i got it i gotta say (laughs) i was caught up in it and um yeah i was i was caught up in it too i i enjoyed the film yes i i enjoyed the film as well i'm glad that we we picked this movie for our like first black and white film i'd like to do more like first black and white silent film i think this was a great choice in case Listeners out there don't have access to the movie um, or if you're kind of intimidated by watching a silent film, we'll try to do a really quick uh, summary of the story. And if it sounds cool, you know, I encourage you to watch the movie still. So the story is about Sylvia Landry, who is a young uh, black woman who is a also a teacher. And she's visiting her cousin Alma. And Alma's is kind of jealous of Sylvia. Uh, and as she's visiting, she's waiting for her fiance, Conrad, to come back from from the war, I think. Alma is like secretly in love with Conrad. So she like hides some telegrams and arranges uh, Conrad to find Sylvia in a compromising position. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but like he comes home and she he sees sylvia with like a white guy and he assumes that she's cheating on him and then he breaks up with her alma has a uh is it like a stepbrother or brother-in-law or something larry i i I don't know larry's real relation to alma but they're like related somehow yes and almost kind of hoping that larry and sylvia would get together but that doesn't happen larry's into sylvia but sylvia's not into larry larry ends up cheating in a game at at poker and when he when he gets caught him and his partner kill the guy and then they hide from the police and they never the body's never found but larry's just kind of like hanging around uh in the north this this all happens i think in chicago i don't think they ever say but it's so sylvia goes back to the south and she applies to be a teacher but the school is it's like a black school and they're not getting a lot of money they're gonna get they're going to close unless they raise $5,000. $5,000 in like 1920s money. So that's like, that's a lot of money. So Sylvia is like, all right, I'm going to go back to the North and try to raise some money. So she goes up and then she gets robbed. And this doc, Dr. Vivian is like, he's, he's like just sitting in his, in his room and he sees this robbery take place. And he somehow catches up to the thief and returns the purse to Sylvia and it's like a little meet cute moment like you can tell they're like interested in each other and then Sylvia is almost hit by a car she tries to save a kid <laughs> and she recovers in a hospital and then the woman that almost hit her is like a wealthy philanthropist and she hears about her plight of her school and she's like you come meet me at this address and we'll talk about this so you know as as wealthy white women are one to do they she calls up her friend <laughs> Uh, what's her friend's name? Geraldine. 
Yeah. And Gerald, she tells Geraldine, like, I want to help the South, the, the black people in the South. And since you're a Southerner, tell me what, what I should do. <laughs> and, and, and Geraldine is terrible. She's an awful racist woman who's like, you know, blacks wouldn't know what to do with the money if you gave it to them. They need to learn their place. You know, don't give $5,000 to some school. Give it to give a hundred dollars to the to the preacher. He's he's a good he's one of the good ones, basically, is what she says. Mm -hmm. And then it cuts to the preacher who's um, giving a sermon about how the white men are going to hell because of all their money and their vices and their godlessness and all this stuff. And then he's like, all right, now maybe you want to like donate to the church. But before you donate, I need to tell you someone's been stealing money. From the church basket. I would hope that they would just return it. And then everyone's donating money because they're like, oh my God, who would steal from the church? And he's like, yeah, yeah, donate. And then he goes and meets his white friends. And then they're like, you hear this about black, black people trying to get the right to vote? And then um, the preacher is like, oh, black, black people don't need to worry about the white man's politics. All you white people are going to hell. Black, I'll t I'll keep the the black people in line. I'm gonna make sure there's gonna be more black people in heaven than there are in hell, and the, they're all like laughing. And then the white dudes they like playfully kick him in in the ass, and yeah. then and then he he goes away. And then he's like, you see that he's he's doing this as an act. It's almost like Samuel Jackson in um, Django Unchained, where like he's pretending to be this guy so that he can like stay close to the white people and keep himself rich and, and have food to eat and everything. And then you never see that character again. <laughs> Sylvia goes back to, to Mrs. Warwick, Warwick, the, the philanthropist. And you think, Oh, she's not going to give her the money. Cause she talked to her racist white friend. Uh, and you don't know what she says. You just see their reactions and everything. And then she, you see a telegram go back to the school saying, don't close the school. The money's on the way. And it's like, oh, she sent that before. She talked to her again. What's going to happen? And then you see uh, Mrs. Warwick meet Geraldine again. And then she's like, you know, I thought about what you said about the black people in the South. And instead of $5,000, I'm giving them $50,000. And then Geraldine's like, oh, my God, how could you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And then I think you never see her again after that point, right? No. Sylvia goes back to the South. But Larry's kind of hanging around. And he's using the school as a as a place to sell some goods that were stolen, like fence some goods. And she's like, I'm trying to help all the poor black kids lift themselves out of this poverty. And you're kind of messing this up. So I would appreciate it if you would never come back again. And he's like, you can't tell me what to do. If you if you tell me what to do, I'm going to tell everybody else what your past is. And then she's like, well. I don't want to hurt these kids, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave. So she leaves to to the north again, and Doctor Vivian he's like in love with Sylvia, so he's trying to like chase her down, find her, and then by fate, uh, Larry the the criminal guy he gets into a shootout with with some with a cop, and it is it is a very epic like gunfight, like goddamn the way they hold their guns, <laughs> uh, and he's like fatally wounded happens upon Dr. Vivian and then Dr. Vivian meets with Alma's cousin and Alma tells Dr. Vivian about her past 
and we get this flashback to how Sylvia, to Sylvia's adopted family and how she was going to school and she helped them figure out their finances. And uh, when she shows her adopted dad how to like fix his, to pay his rent, the landlord has like an assistant whose name is... Ephraim. Ephraim? Ephraim. So he has this assistant, Ephraim, who's like this nosy guy who likes to like tattletale on, on black people. He's a black guy who's... I think they call him like an uncle, Uncle Ned, right? No, no. Old Ned was the preacher. Old Ned. But, oh, but, all right. But but Ephraim is an Uncle Tom. Basically, yeah. He he tells he tells the white landlord, "Hey, uh, Sylvia's getting smart. She's you're not going to be able to cheat the the Landrys anymore." And then the landlord's upset. So when her dad goes to pay the landlord, he's like, "You're not going to be getting too smart with me." And then he pulls a gun on him. But then, like, this random guy outside, we don't know who he is. We never know who he is. He's, he's got a gun, and he shoots the landlord. And the Ephraim, he sees this, and he thinks that uh, Sylvia's dad killed the landlord. So he goes and tells everybody. So now there's, like, a lynch mob coming after the Landrys, and they end up actually catching them. But because it takes so long, they, the lynch mob gets bored. They hang Ephraim for fun. And then they hang up um, Sylvia's dad and her mom. And they try to, to hang the little, the little boy too. But he somehow gets away on a horse and just gets out of there. And then Sylvia is separated from them. So she's not lynched. But the landlord's brother tries to rape her. And then when he sees a scar on her chest, he, he realizes, oh, you're actually my daughter. And then he pays for her education. So then Dr. Vavian's like, Jesus, Sylvia's had a very traumatic history. And he goes and, and talks to her and he tells her, you should be proud of your country. I love you. And then they get married. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, that is a weird ending. We will get to that. We'll get to it. Um, yeah, brutal movie. Like, there's a lot of uh, unpleasantness in the movie in terms of plot points, right? There's a yeah. lot of messed up things in it. And granted, it doesn't have the same visual, um, like uh, it doesn't carry the same visuals that those things would have nowadays. I mean, nowadays, right? like you, you don't see the people get lynched. You see them tie the rope around them and you see the ropes go up and then it cuts away. And then you see them cut the ropes mm -hmm. down. And it, it's still difficult to watch. Yeah, it is. To be honest, I'm even curious to see how much he actually filmed of that because his movies were censored a lot. They, they were not. He had a lot of footage that he had to censor because people at the time found these some of these some people found these movies uh, vicious, just horrendous. And they were like, we can't we can't put this in, in theaters. This is too violent. So he had to constantly recut and recut. I'm wondering whether he actually filmed. uh more of like the lynchings, more of the rape and the murders. I'm just, I can't help but wonder because, I mean, if this man was ballsy enough to do, to do, put all this stuff in his film a hundred years ago, I mean, I mean, I'm, he was very, he was determined to show what it was like to be a black person at this time. And I mean, as we know, it was not easy. It was horrendous. And he was oh, yeah. committed to that vision. So I'm definitely curious to see how much of that stuff he wanted to incorporate but had to pull back because of the censorship. I'm wondering, because in, when this movie debuted in Chicago, it, it was cut differently based off of 
who was okay with what being shown. In some places in the South, it was just outright banned. Mm-hmm. So I, this version of the movie that we saw, probably not the same as other people who saw it back in 1920. Yeah, We could be seeing more or we could be seeing less. There's no way to tell. <laughs> and another thing to take into account is that we're not seeing the original prints. We are seeing... We're seeing print from Spain. How the fuck did they get there? Who has any idea, right? But we're we're seeing there, there's an entire section of the movie that's gone. Plus, the mm-hmm. title screens had to be translated from Spanish. They're not even the authentic Michal title pages. Yeah, they were like reconstructed based off of uh, somebody who studied his his writing. They're like, okay, mm-hmm. well, he he likes to talk in this way, so maybe we can translate this like in and try to like capture his voice in the translation but you know inevitably something is going to be lost Mm -hmm. and it's there's no way to recover it yeah this film that we're watching is probably not exactly what michelle wanted us to see but it's still a good indication of what kind of topics he was willing to film and write about and this movie is brutal and it it has a lot of uh it has a lot of drama in it right this is a race film right a race film or a race movie was a genre of films produced in the united states between 1915 and the early 1950s consisting of films produced for black audiences featuring black cast approximately 500 race films were produced of these fewer than a hundred remain that's 400 films lost because race films were produced outside the Hollywood system, they were largely forgotten by mainstream film historians until they resurfaced in the 80s on the BET c- cable network. In their day, race films were very popular among African-American theatergoers. Their influence continues to be felt in cinema and television marketed to, to African-Americans. It's really like a film with minorities in them because back then films were segregated. Like mm-hmm. you didn't have a lot of white people you know, with black co-stars back then. No, not many. Isn't that I mean, nuts? This film has that. This it does, yeah. This film does has that. It has, uh, it has multiracial cast all the way through. Uh, black people of different complexion, which we'll actually get to. It's actually pretty diverse in gender too. A lot of a lot of men and a lot of women too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of ahead of its time in that regard, and in terms of what it's talking about and the thing is too it's not talking about it in like a celebratory congratulatory way like birth of a nation is it talks about it kind of keeps the ugliness of what this stuff entails granted it's diluted a bit by the ending the ending is very like out of left field i think yeah it uh, like i mean like the very ending when when dr vivian talks to sylvia well the film is it's it's a bit scattershot because there are a lot of characters that are introduced and kind of left hanging and then reintroduced. And you're just like, wait, how is this? A screenwriter today would say like, no, a character introduced here or needs to come back here. And oh, Chekhov's gun. If you introduce something in the first act that has to come back in the third act. Michelle's like, I don't play by those rules. Or he or he wanted to to hit certain points mm-hmm. in, in the film that no one else would even come close to touching. Fair enough. And he wanted to hit all these points. And you know what? Might, might as well just do it in this in this movie. You know, yeah. I, the movie is scattershot, but it's so much easier to watch. It's so much more 
comprehensible than Birth of a Nation. I haven't seen Birth of a Nation in a while, but I'll take your word for it. I think this film is uh, enjoyable because it kind of, I mean, the pace is nice and brisk. It kind of moves from scene to scene. Um, It does introduce a lot of characters and it does some unorthodox things with flashbacks. Like it has flashbacks within flashbacks, but it never gets confusing. You're able to follow everything. And the film ends Mm -hmm. on that big final flashback. So the, the end of the film, the last like 20 minutes is a flashback. I, I can't really think of a f- modern film that kind of does that where the entire ending is a flashback and the last like two minutes is just the main character with her love interest kind of being like, hey, I love you. Bye. Or like, you know, like that's the filmmaker saying <laughs> Let's bye. get married. Yeah. It's like what? Very unorthodox, a little scattershot, but it's so entertaining. What I kind of figured. The, so the end, the ending surprised me in two ways. I thought that Dr. Vivian thing was weird. Right, where he's telling her to love your country and whatnot. But the other thing that was weird was, as I'm watching the film, there's so many characters. And I'm like, oh my god, how is this all going to tie in together? Like, how are how's the detective and the, the preacher and Larry, you know, the gangster, how are they all going to come in together in this grand finale? Like, is it going to be a giant shootout at the school? <laughs> I, I was just thinking, like, how are they going to bring everyone together? And then they don't. It's it's like a like Richard Linklater, how it's just like a slice of life kind of thing, where you're seeing different sides of the African American experience. It is a slice of life kind of thing where you have these little minor stories in this big story about Sylvia, and it does focus on each character and kind of how they feel and their experiences because they. I mean, every character here has very different experiences, drastically different. They all have their own motivations, their own wants, and kind of the way they feel about things. Larry's a gangster. You know, he wants to profit. He's kind of a sleazebag. But the film also has a title card that says he can't find, like, regular work. Exactly. So he has to resort to to crime. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, old, old, uh, the preacher, Old Ned, I believe. Yes. Uh, And yeah, I mean, he's he kind of. In a weird way, he does kind of he acts like an Uncle Tom, you know, because he isn't confrontational with white people and he gets on stage and he knows that his his uh, congregation listens to him and he could be saying a lot more positive things. But, you know, he he's doing it to survive. I mean, he even says it like, you know, I've I've sold my birthright and I'm going to hell. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you can't help but feel bad for him. But you can he, kind of feel bad for him, yeah. like. But I, I don't know. Sometimes when I, when I think about some things that some people say, you know, even though they might not agree with them, but they're saying it because it makes them money, mm-hmm. and it keeps their keeps them their jobs. Isn't that worse to to knowingly do something wrong because it keeps you safe, but hurts? other people isn't that worse it's tough and i think that's for and i think that's the beautiful thing about this film it's really for the individual to decide because i mean i guarantee you some people would see this and like he's a despicable character he's he's awful and some people would say you know back in the 20s that's what you had to do to survive especially if you were a black person it's still what what people do today you know yeah absolutely candace owen (sighs) oh cheap I mean, 
I have no idea what's going through that woman's head, but knowing that she was a liberal first and then she became a super conservative Fox News voice box, which is like, how do you do this U-turn? I, I think it's because there's there's money in, in her on her current path. There's like security. I I don't think she believes half the things that she says. I don't think any of them do. But I they I think they know people are listening to this. This gets me money. This gets me job security. This keeps uh, a giant house over my head. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep doing it. It's really tough. I mean, yeah, man, you nailed it with Candace Owens. And um, <clears throat> I mean, who knows what she's really thinking? But I mean, those are Michelle's characters. You know, they really I mean, he was able to really portray them realistically, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we're still talking about it today and we're comparing them. We're comparing these fictional characters to people in modern day. Uh, you yes. know, the detective, Larry, uh, even Sylvia, you know, the main character. Mm-hmm. She um, she's just someone who wants to seek a better future and she's trying to do the right thing. And early on, when Conrad catches her with the man, I think she was um, kind of prostitute. She was she was a prostitute. That's kind of how I read into it. I don't really know. I I was like, who is this guy? Is he maybe her her dad, the landlord's brother? In the moment, though, you don't. In the moment, I you don't know. Yeah, it, and it, you just get the title card saying, "No explanation will justify this." I think it was because I think she was. That's how I read it, because the man's like didn't have his shirt on. He had like a muscle tee and it seemed like she was getting ready. It didn't seem like it was just they walked. They just had a conversation. That's how I read into it. Right. Um, but you, you can tell that she's uncomfortable with it. She's yes. she's not in love with this guy. She's clearly like pushing herself away from him. It's not a cordial conversation, even if they didn't actually have sex. If it was just uh, a conversation, it was an unpleasant one. At the very mm-hmm. least, she she's definitely not when she sees Conrad, she like immediately lights up and she's yeah. fucking Conrad. Oh, my God. Ugh, this dude is wild. He, you know, her uh, her fiance, her husband, or her fiance. I think it was a fiance. fiance. Yeah, fiance. They, they weren't married yet. He was like, oh, I can't wait to make you my wife <laughs> on his uh, letter. Yeah. And then he comes in and nearly chokes her out. He almost kills her. Yeah, the, the Alma has to stop has yeah. to stop it. And she's the one who set it up. Which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of explains why she like, you know, pours her heart out to Dr. Vivian at the end, but it's just like Jesus Christ. And there's there's like that love triangle kind of in a way. All the men <laughs> in this movie love uh or most of the men love Sylvia. Right. Oh yeah, you, you they're have, all um, into her. Every every single one, I think. Yeah, the, every single one that meets her. Yeah, well, it, it, like Conrad's engaged to her. Then Larry is trying to steal her from Conrad. And then you have the school teacher, who you know, says, her okay. her employer in the South. Yeah, and then you have Doctor Vivian. So there is like a there's that lo- love romantic element to it, but there's also the element of just trying to survive and trying to get this school from from shutting down um, yeah it's a it's a wild movie especially for like being written and filmed 102 years ago it's like oh all right i i feel like because of how much depth it has 
it holds up than some other movies that we've covered that have come out more recently. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Remember when I was like, I'm wondering like how much things have changed between then and now. And I'm like, I'm thinking it's going to be not a lot. And boy, was I right. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. Not that much has changed. I mean, that old Ned character, right? Yeah, they exist. And the they're the school's money problems. Like, do you know how school, how public schools are funded in the United States? No. They're funded um, partially by income tax and property tax. So depending on how wealthy the district is, that's how much money they get from the state. Oh, so if you're in a poor community, not yeah, not the same. You're not getting a lot of good, uh, you're not getting the good textbooks. You're not getting, you know, air conditioned rooms and stuff. It's really sad. <laughs> I mean, it's the different century, same old problems, right? Was what's that expression? Or same shit, different smell, or something? Or that Tame Impala song, "New Person, Same Mistakes." Yeah. No, but it, it 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 is it is tragic. Granted, there's been a lot of advancements, a lot of good things have come uh, in the past hundred years, a lot. But it, mm-hmm. it, it it we keep coming back to these basic fundamental flaws. Yeah. I mean, this is the dude that was talking about these films, and he was exhibiting them all across the country and anywhere that they would that they would be allowed to play. And he had to recut, re-edit these things because they were violent and they were rough to watch for a lot of people. At the end of the day, he wanted people to see this movie. So he was he was willing to make those cuts. Which, you know, it's it's funny. You hear about um, you hear about directors nowadays being like, I need to have final cut. Like, you know, our real auteurs. And it's like Oscar Michaud was one of the original auteurs. And I mean, he was fine with cutting his films because he was he just wanted eyes on them. So I just Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. What was so earlier you were talking about kind of how he had to film them. Mm -hmm. So he is considered one of the first like his feature, his first feature film, The Homesteader, is considered the first film to be directed and written by an African-American. The Homesteader, Oscar Michaud. Where is it now? The Homesteader? Yeah, I have no idea. It's gone, dude. It's gone? It's gone. We can't watch it. We cannot watch it. You know, I was actually thinking, like, I kind of want to watch The Homesteader now. Yeah. (laughs) We legit cannot watch this film. We legit cannot watch it. It Unless we have a time machine, we cannot watch that movie. What the fuck? And that was based off of his book that he Mm -hmm. had written about becoming a homesteader, kind of living out in the country and having his own land. The His book... The first one that he wrote was The Conquest, the story of a Negro pioneer. And he wrote that up kind of like a like an autobiography. You know, kind of detailed his upbringing, kind of his life, him as a homesteader and his first marriage. Which went really horribly, by the way. Oh, man. Yeah, they and he wanted to make it Los Angeles. Right. This company called the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, the first major African-American feature uh, or one of the first major movie companies owned and controlled by by black filmmakers wanted to make it. And Oscar Michelle was like, hey, I want to direct it. And they were like, no, we can't do that. So he decided to form his own company and make the film himself. And that's where we have The Homesteader. And that's probably why The Homesteader no longer exists, because 
is hard to 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 like keep films. It's, it was hard to like um, preserve them. You know, you needed you needed the space to do it. It was an independent company, right? It was this was his first comp like his first motion picture, and it just got lost. Um, and it, it got rave reviews. Like a bunch of people saw it and were like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. Uh, and that actually opened up a lot of doors for him. So it's really cool. And the fact that we can't watch it is fucking insane. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about this. He was really considered like an independent filmmaker. Like one of the first independent filmmakers. Right? Because filmmakers, like, you know, a lot of them, a lot of the big mainstream stuff were in Hollywood. But if you were outside of Hollywood, you had to be really good at getting finance and the way michelle was filming and stuff the way you'd say it, like with one take that's an indie filmmaker we can't get this coverage we have to like go 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 and it was funny there are like a, a few instances in the film one that i could remember right now where it was like why didn't they just redo that but they couldn't <laughs> because they didn't have enough because film is expensive, they had to, you know, the mm. process to processing the film is is expensive. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't afford it. He probably didn't have enough film canisters. It was the scene mm-hmm. where Larry finds Sylvia at the school after she moved. Oh, uh, when they like walk by each other and he turns around and he's like, hey, I know you. Yeah. Like, it was just so awkward and like the timing wasn't right. And I'm like, why don't you just get that again? Like, why'd you... Just get it in the original Y that you had it. Don't, like, cut. And there's there's also, like, weird, like, acting sensibilities that just don't exist in modern cinema. But we're all over, like, the old stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? So some... I don't even know how to judge the performances because I don't know how people acted back then. But I do get how they're feeling. So I... I I'm it, not as hard... Unless, like, Conrad... I feel like Conrad was overdoing it a little bit. And he's like huffing and puffing. I feel like uh, no disrespect to the actor, but I that performance was the one that kind of took me out of it. I agree with you 100 percent. OK, like I, I, I'm with you with I think the thing that hasn't aged the, the best, some of the filming techniques. But I mean, it's I mean, this is the fucking this is 1919. Do you know what I mean? Like 1920. Yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to harp on it too much about that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the acting, though, is a little... The the acting board is all across the spectrum between good and bad. Yeah. Because you'll have, like, uh, Conrad, who was overdoing it a little... Because, <sighs> silent film acting was very different because you couldn't... We couldn't you can't hear, talk, so yeah. you, you have to understand. And you can't, like, have a title card after every single person opens their mouth. You know, that would be terrible. Yeah. You have to communicate through your body. But some people just overdo it, like Conrad, where he's huffing and puffing, just, you know? <laughs> um, and, like, Dr. Vivian wasn't really doing much acting. Yeah, I I was like, what's this guy's deal, dude? Yeah. I was... Uh. I didn't feel that he had any connection with Sylvia at all. I was like, these guys have no romantic chemistry at all. You're supposed to... You're selling me the fact that they want to be together? Uh, no. And to be... Okay, if I'm being fair... Sylvia was not that great either. I, oh, no. I, I look, she's not bad, but I think I don't know. There's just some moments I could understand how she was feeling throughout the movie, though. Yes, you know, because because you can tell she's uncomfortable, but she doesn't want to 
expressively show how uncomfortable she is because this guy could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy is my boss. This guy has killed people. You know, this guy might kill me because he's got his hands around my throat. You know what I mean? I agree with you there. I knew what everyone was feeling and what they were emotionally feeling all the way through. There was no moment where I was like, oh, I'm confused by that. Yeah. Granted, you know, sometimes I, I, was I like, think Sylvia was 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 great. I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I, I wasn't too crazy about her. Dr. <laughs> Vivian. Um, Dr. Vivian. Yeah, I would put his performance like second, second worst, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I think Conrad was the worst. Uh, but like I liked Larry Alma. Um, I like the school teacher, like, even though he's in it a little bit, like I, yeah, I got the disappointment that he felt when Sylvia did not reciprocate his feelings. Um, it's funny. The person who I liked the most was the Reverend. There were three performances that he kind of gave in each section of the film, right? Yeah. When he's in front of, when he's at church in front of his congregation, when he's talking to the white guys behind closed doors and when he leaves the office. Right. Mm-hmm. So three different faces that he has to put on or two different faces that he has to put on. And then there's how he actually feels. And I bought it and I was like, oh, yeah, you don't even need the title card to say what he's saying for you to know. Oh, this guy's putting on an act. Dude, you know, a hundred. Yes. You didn't even need that title card card and you would understand exactly how he's feeling and i like that i was like oh my god that's great i want to see more of him and the fact that he doesn't come in and have and add anything else to the story was kind of disappointing in fact that was one of my biggest complaints with the film is that i think his you see that character like come up with a friend who's somebody who puts on this performance so that he can associate with white people absolutely and i mean geraldine's the one that kind of like oh just give it to him because he'll if you give the Reverend money, he's going to look out for black people, you know, like he's going to look out for his own kind. Right. And instead of giving the money to the school and then you see like kind of how he kind of his relationship to his congregation and to white people. And you're like, oh, he's not really going to do much with the money. Like, this is a problem. Yeah. And, and that, that was well communicated. And I understood that. I just wish I'd seen more of him. I thought he was going to come in a little bit more and have some kind of like redemptive arc or something. Maybe I, maybe I wanted that, or maybe I figured that he was just, I figured him and Geraldine were going to kind of come in more. I thought Geraldine was going to play a bigger part because, you know, she's like the Karen of the times where she she sees that one of her friends, one of her rich friends is about to give 50,000 to a school. 5,000. No, no, oh, oh, 5,000. And then she finds out it's 50,000. You know, if I'm a Karen, I'm like, I'm going to stop this however I can. I can't have you do that. And also to our listeners, 50000 back then, I checked it, is the equivalent of 258000 today. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a quarter yeah. million. Quarter of a million. So I figured she was going to play a bigger part. She was going to do more disruption. And the fact that Warwick just kind of like... No, I've decided to give him 50000 and that's it. That's decided. I was like, that's it? Like, there's no... Okay. I don't know. There were some things that I thought were going to be expanded on a little bit more that weren't. But um, it, it throws you for a loop because of their performances. You mm-hmm. know, when she says, I'm giving them 50000 It's like, oh my God. What a relief. There's some tension there. You know, when Geraldine's oh, yeah. talking to, to Warwick and... 
or it's like listening intently and you're like, oh no. Oh no. I know you hate that, but <laughs> Oh my god. And but, then you can when you I rewatched that scene when um Warwick is talking to Sylvia the second time when she's telling him, I've decided what to do about your school. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, she's telling her fifty thousand yeah. dollars. And she's just so like overwhelmed with this information that she looks like she's upset. Yeah. She she looks like she doesn't know how to like process this and how to believe this this is actually happening. But the first time you see it, it's like, oh, she's giving her the bad news. She's saying, I'm talking to my racist white friend and I agreed with her. Yeah. You know, that's definitely what I imagined. Uh, and then it, I, I was like, OK, so how's this going to go? Like she's going to give the money to or she already gave the money to the reverend. And so then like Sylvia's going to go meet him and try to appeal to him and say, hey, like you can, you know, I'm not saying like, let's try to come to uh, an agreement between our school and the church, you know, or something like that fact that it was just like oh i've decided sylvia to give my money to you in fact i'm going to give you a lot more than you asked for and all your financial <laughs> problems are are solved and i was like oh okay yeah so like as as a narrative like in traditional narratives like you wouldn't expect to go to a flashback after no. this point you know but i think if you like look at it differently you're you're seeing that okay Yes, things are going to get better for this school, but we can't forget what is happening. You know, we can't forget the past. We can't forget the history because then we'll never learn from it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I, it was, I understand include because Sylvia is the main character, right? Mm-hmm. And having her flashback and kind of where she comes from and kind of, it explains how she was educated and why she valued education so much, but including it at the very end that Alma is like telling Dr. Vivian and not, not Sylvia herself just felt a little weird. Uh, Especially the fact that like Dr. Vivian took Larry to their place, right? Because he was shot. He was fatally wounded. We don't know if he dies. Yeah. We don't know. We don't know if he's mortally wounded, but we don't know if, he gets treatment a, a better, I guess. Yeah. And, and the whole the whole setup to the flashback felt a little weird. And then it, it was a long flashback. And then just ending it, I was like, this feels weird. Like normally, yeah. w- where would the flashback have gone in like a conventional modern day Hollywood film? And it's like maybe at the It'd probably be told like concurrently, I think. Yeah. Like you'd start off with like, you know, you kind of start off with. um Um. The laundry, the Landry family, and kind of the the end of Act One is kind of Sylvia escaping, um, you know, uh, Armad's grasp, you know, as he finds out that she's that that she's his daughter, and then she heads to the city, and I guess she meets Conrad. Another thing, another thing that's left up in the air, we don't know anything about uh, Emil, the boy that lived. Yeah, he, the boy that lived. We we don't know what happened yeah. to him in a conventional Hollywood structure film. Ah, oh, you're you're loose threads. Everything needs to come back together. But you know, I, I don't hold that against in reality. The, film. The, the reality, exactly. Like like there are some things that I'm holding up this story to like modern standards. Where I'm like, ah, you could have done this, you could have done that. But there are certain things that I'm like, nah. This was a like I will give this a pass. I think it works because having Emil escape and not being able to 
follow up with it. That happened in real life. And it adds like even more of a tragic element to the story. Oh, yeah. We don't know if he survived or if he died, you know? And it, it like, when you um, contextualize like this really like bleak looking reality of it compared to, oh, I almost got hit by a white woman. I almost got run over by a white woman and she happened to be rich and she gave my school a lot of money. You know, it's like, uh, it's it's so different. Like it, the the first half is so hopeful and like, yes, good things are happening, but the, the past is so dark and depressing. Yeah. And the fact that he want that he ends on like Dr. Vivian's like speech, trying to end it like on a somewhat hopeful note, just felt a little too like, all right, we got to wrap this up quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it ends. It ends very bleakly with the flashback with the flashback, her family being lynched and her almost being raped. Yeah, I, I wish that she she didn't marry him, you know, because it, it feels like he he heard her story and didn't really. Like. Like, listen to it, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, OK, let's 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 talk about the ending since we're here already. Um, What does Dr. Vivian actually say to her? OK. So I, I did a little bit of some history digging um, and he says I he said he's like, oh, I, I've heard about what happened, but I think your feelings have been warped. You got to you got to remember uh, what happened in Cuba under Roosevelt's command. And in he's talking about Theodore Roosevelt and the Spanish American War. Where um, it was one of the first times the 10th Cavalry Unit which is a segregated unit of black soldiers. They fought in the uh, Spanish-American War. They were put in Cuba. Of the 17,000 soldiers that went to Cuba, 3,000 were black. And he talks about, remember Carrizal, Carrizal in Mexico, which also, again, referring to the 10th Cavalry Regiment. Um, They're also known as the Buffalo Soldiers, if you're familiar with that term, like this, this is the same group of people mm-hmm. who were sent into Mexico to capture Pancho Villa. By the way, they did not succeed. A lot of them died and were captured. Mm-hmm. Um, in France, from from Bruges to to Chateau Thierry or, or something, which is all also referring to a segregated unit of black soldiers in World War One. And it, what's wild is that they were also trained in segregated camps and as we know segregation is not equal right so these camps were inferior to like the white camps some of the officers weren't really formally trained um according to the this historical website on delaware.gov the three 369th united states infantry was a regiment of african-american combat troops that arrived to help the French army, earning reputation from the Germans as Hellfighters. They were also nicknamed the Harlem Hellfighters because the regiment never lost a man through capture, lost a trench, or a foot ground to the enemy. So he's talking about all of these black soldiers that in order to, you know, earn the respect, earn the same privileges as white Americans, they had to put their lives on a line for the country that barely even acknowledged them, mm-hmm. which is, is crazy, you know? Yeah. I, I, mean, I feel like um, I don't really talk 
much to my grandfather, but I know he grew up in Arkansas and he, he joined the army during World War II to get out of Arkansas. That's how bad it was for him. He joined the, the fucking world war to get out of it. Crazy. But that's what, that's what some people had to do to get out of the, the racism of the South. It feels really... Because on, on two hands, I could kind of... There's two ways I feel about this. Because I understand where Mishaw's coming from. Because reading a little bit about Mishaw, he definitely seems like the guy that would say like... He's like the kind of guy that would say like, you need to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, right? In a regard, he did that. Like, he worked a lot of different jobs. He started multiple businesses. Um, he, he This man worked a lot. And, you know, he just wanted more for himself and for black people, right? And he was like, you just mm-hmm. got to work really, really hard. You know, he had to say nothing is impossible, which is admirable. But the reality is some things are impossible to some people. Some people don't and have. You, sh- you shouldn't like take pride in how much you had to suffer yeah. to get to to get to be treated equal. Yeah. You know, it's it's not fair. And you, you shouldn't have to, to be. I don't know. I, it just feels when you, when um, Dr. Vivian says, be proud of your country always, you know, in spite of your misfortunes, you will always be a patriot and a tender wife. It just feels like really dismissive of her experience well, a lot of people's experience and yeah you know a lot of people a lot of soldiers died uh and those that did survive i'm sure fought hard fought fought as equally hard and when they came back they were still mistreated so yes. going through all that did not really do much so then what was the point do you know what i mean like there if you're looking at it from ah you have to fight to earn the respect it's like i fought and i still didn't get respected so exactly dude it's again i appreciate the hard work mentality i'm not saying like they should they should give up or anything no, they should no, no, give no. up but like it's like why do you have to say that <laughs> you know what i mean well it, yeah and dr vivian just ending it, it it just feels really weird normally right like nowadays this would end like hey i'm really sorry about what you went through mm-hmm. um you know it's it's really hard for us black people here, you know, uh, but as long as we stick together, we can surpass anything. I love you. Please be my wife and I will support you until the day I die or something. Right. Or maybe that- talk about what she actually did yeah. in the movie. You know, she used she used her education and it devoted her life. She funded helping- the fucking school. Yeah, she, she did that. Mm-hmm. She funded the school for probably decades they were looking the school was looking for five thousand and she gave the school fifty thousand so even if she leaves that school has the money which is what she was going to do because her her uh cousin's stepbrother lenny is like creeping around there every saturday and the principal wants her yeah like she doesn't feel comfortable there but she she didn't do it for them she did it for the kids well, she did. She did it because she values education. She knows the power of education, which mm-hmm. so did Mishaw. I mean, that's. I mean, education is an instrumental part. So she understood the value of it, and I mean, she didn't do it for anyone. She did it for her for the children, and because she knows that it's the right thing to do. 
And it just feels a little weird to just end the movie on that note. It's just so like, love your country. Your country's great. And, um, uh, you know, we were never immigrants. Be proud of your country always. Um, yeah, your thoughts have been warped. And in, in spite of your misfortunes, you will always be a patriot and a tender wife. I love you. Like, that just, what? She's a patriot? Worst proposal ever. Yeah. And then it's like, and a little while later, we see that Sylvia understood that perhaps Dr. Vivian was right all along. Or right after all. What? What are you, t- what the, f- what? Uh, uh, I think that's Mishaw's hand, like, really creeping in there. I don't, is it? Or was it something that he felt like he had to do to just to get the movie out there? Well, actually, that's a good point. I don't know. I think it's him. Reading about his biography, he very much has that pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that's definitely, those lines are definitely something that someone like that would say. I'm not saying he could have, he couldn't have ended the film on the marriage of Vivian and and Sylvia. He could, I'm not saying that at all. Because a wedding... Hey, it's our marriage. You know, it's hey, that's that's a great happy ending. But he didn't have to go down the route he went. It's very like condescending. <laughs> love your country, Austin. Regardless of what it has done to you, love it. All right. And if you don't, you're un-American. What if she had said that? What if she had just said like, you know what? I don't really like this country. Like I'm here because I'm here, but it's kind of been fucked up. What would he have said then? Or, or, or like, I love, I want to love my country, but it doesn't love me back. Yeah. He, I guarantee you Dr. Vivian would have said, well, that means you still got to love it. What? Clearly she's not like giving up. Like she's, she's always trying to do the right thing. You know, throughout the whole movie, she's always trying to do the right thing. Yeah. She, she could have moved away from the South, but she, she stayed there for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Don't. Don't tell me how I should feel yeah, about dude. a country that that has mistreated. Do you know what I mean? Don't tell me how to feel about things just in general. It's just like you need to love this movie, Jorge. What? Why? <laughs> just no. I I don't love it. No, you do. Shut the fuck. I mean, I, I I don't know. I feel like I was being accosted when I told you I didn't love Independence Day. Oh, you 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 fucking were. But you know that's old, <laughs> Jorge. That's all I've learned. Okay. Very weird note to end the film on. Yeah, um, it is really weird. But hey, I mean, it's still an admirable film that we both enjoyed. Oh yeah, I I think it was pretty good. Just yeah. the the ending. I'm just like in my head canon. I'm like he had to say this just to get the movie in theaters. Which I mean, hey, no, which again, that's, that's how I'm I'm thinking. <laughs> uh, like that that could be the truth. Yeah, I mean, he we know that he had to recut this a lot of times, and we don't know. The, the, again, like I said earlier, the film that we are watching is not Mishaw's original vision. This has been altered right. and retranslated and reprinted. We have no idea what is actually his true vision. I don't, what if what if the Spanish titles actually said something else? And then Library of Congress or whoever translated it was like, whoa, we need to dial this back. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't think that happened. But because like to me, that is that is like not what I would think is the response to hearing about her story. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Again, I I don't. Like, think does she ever say she's not a patriot and she that she hates she America? She never uttered the word patriot. I don't think so. I don't know where it comes from, dude. Yeah, it's there's something funky there. That's but you know that's how I feel. I don't have any evidence based. I'm just basing it off of what I saw in the movie and the historical context in which this movie came out in. Yeah. It, which I, I would like to talk about, unless there's something else you wanted to say. Uh, no, in terms of the film, uh, I, I dug it. A few things here and there that were kind of wonky. Um, you, I mean, you could tell that, you know, some of the things were just, um, were just kind of, like it, it, it is a low budget film. It is an independent film, but I mean, there was a lot of tension, a lot of suspense. You know, the shoot that the shootout was great between Laurie and the detective. You know, yeah, you can I only love s- the way they they hold their guns. Like you, you don't get that in movies. No. It's like it was like the like the first instance of like gun kata mm-hmm. <laughs> from Equilibrium. Yeah, and it was just circling each other. It was yeah, it was it was great. Uh, some of the performances were a little wonky, but I mean. In the end of the day, you're you're grading these um, these you're grading this acting on a curve because we don't really know what good silent film acting is. You know what is good film silent film acting? I don't know. Oh, Charlie Chaplin, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and they emote a lot. So who's to say that these actors emoting isn't good either? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about. A little, I wanted to bring up the historical context of this movie. Um, in 1919, uh, there was a, a series of riots known as the Chicago Race Riots that broke out. Um, so you need to know a little bit of context for how these, what started this, you know. So after the Civil War, slavery was abolished and all slaves were freed and they had to like be citizens. And the Southerners were like not super thrilled to let that happen so they instituted a bunch of laws known as the jim crow laws Mm -hmm. that enforced segregation between whites and black people it was public institutions like schools and libraries were segregated so that white people would be separate from black people and those institutions that the black people had were severely underfunded They also disenfranchised them by adding restrictions and regulations that prevented them from being able to vote. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) This, along with the lynching and the revived KKK, triggered the Great Migration. The Great Migration, uh, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, was a widespread migration of African Americans in the 20th century from rural communities in the South to large cities in the North and West. At the turn of the 20th century, the vast majority of black Americans lived in the southern states. From 1916 to 1970, during this great migration, it is estimated that some 6 million black southerners relocated to urban areas in the north and west. And one place that a lot of, peop- a lot of black people migrated to, including veterans from, the, from World War I, was Chicago. And a lot of Irish immigrants were in Chicago. We kind of talked about this in our Candyman episode mm-hmm. of how a lot of European immigrants were living there and then a bunch of black people moved in. And there was conflict between them because they were all competing for the same low-wage jobs. Way back in the early 20th century, Irish people, Italians, they weren't really considered white. 
Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I actually didn't know too much about the about the discrimination that Irish that the Irish went through, but it, it was tough, man. Oh yeah. So now they're like competing with black people and tensions were rising and things came to a boiling point at a beach when there is an un like an unofficial segregated like line in the water and there was a black teenager who was drifting on some kind of like homemade raft and it went over into the like quote unquote white waters and a white man threw rocks at him and it caused him to drown and when the black uh, when some black people confronted the man who threw the rocks the police arrested the black people and let the murderer go and for five days city was plagued with violence and unrest Jesus. you have black people protesting and white mobs attacking them what the fuck i'm already thinking of instances that have of where that's happened literally today mm-hmm. yeah you remember the the story about the new jersey mall yeah. where these two teenagers were fighting it's all on video you know they start fighting and then the cops come in and throw the black kid on the ground and they just like tell the white kid hey sit down here and they're like arresting this tiny teenager. It is crazy that you're mentioning this because uh, when we were prepping for this episode, right, I was Googling different black filmmakers and kind of going over films that we could talk about. And there was one that I went through. There was a film that I found called The Killing Floor. It was directed by Bill Duke. Bill Duke was in Predator. Oh, was, it, was he the, the guy with the minigun? Yes. Bill Duke. He, he was a prominent actor, but he directed this in 1984. And it was uh, it was a TV movie for PBS. And it it literally is, is about what you're talking about right now between the, the black community and the Irish community working these jobs in Chicago. I, it was one of the films that I was going to recommend. I thought it was really interesting. And I read the description like, oh, this would be a good film to talk about. And then you were talking about all this. I was like, oh, wait. Uh, the Killing Floor might be an actual good film to follow this up with at some point. Oh yeah. What I also I thought was interesting was that the the National Guard was supposed to be called in, but the mayor and the governor were like doing some weird stuff. The mayor didn't want to call the National Guard to stop the riot, which also sounds a little familiar, right? Mm, to what? To Trump not calling the National Guard? Oh, on... on uh, January 6th? Yeah, okay. okay um, shit, you have to remind me, but I was like, oh no, you're right. Yeah, a lot of stuff, like, the whole, like, disenfranchisement with the voting thing is still happening today. Yeah. The the voting bill died in the Senate. Uh, a bunch, like, I think 250 voting regulation laws were were put through. Let me pull up the number. I found this on the Brennan, BrennanCenter.org. Uh, as of January 14th, legislation legislators in at least 27 states have introduced pre-filled or carried over 250 bills with restrictive provisions, compared to 75 such bills in 24 states on January 14th, 2021. Mm-hmm. So this is this year. In keeping with restrictive voting laws passed last year, state legislators have resumed the assault legislation that, if enacted, would disproportionately impact voters of color. 
new person, same old mistakes. Yeah. And I think even in the movie, they, they bring that up about um, women's suffrage. And oh, Geraldine. That's right. Yeah. And Geraldine was like, well, if women get the right to vote, then black women will get the right to vote. And we can't have that. So yeah. women shouldn't vote. Mm hmm. Jesus Christ. Geraldine was a piece of shit, dude. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Reminds me of uh, Ann Coulter, maybe. Uh, I don't know if Ann Coulter is against women voting, but she's definitely. Oh yeah, got... she is. <laughs> I I don't know if Ann Coulter is against women voting. She might be. I don't. She said that she'd be okay with it if oh. it got rid of young people's right to vote. Oh well, she said young people because she knows that we hate her. I'm o- she... I'm okay with if my entire gender loses it too, then I'm okay with it. Well, then there you go. Jesus <laughs> you could take a lot of the characters from that film and extract and find like their modern day equivalent. And they fit pretty well, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, this movie. Yeah, this movie has aged pretty well. Yeah. All things considered. And like the whole idea of like black Americans not being considered real Americans, quote unquote. Yeah. Did you see that clip with Mitch McConnell? No, I never did. He's on camera. He never corrects himself, by the way. So they're they're talking to him about the the voters' bill and his mm-hmm. uh, resistance to to vote for the the freedom to vote, which is something that would um, it's like a federal insurance policy for a lot of people to be able to vote. Mm-hmm. It's it's like to counteract all of the uh, states passing these laws, making it harder to vote. Mm-hmm. When they ask him about it. Asking about his position, why are you opposed to this? Why, uh, at the at a press conference following the failed passage of the majority of the major voting rights legislation, reporter Pablo Manriquez asked McConnell about the impact and concerns of voters of color. Well, this is his words. Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. Huh? I'm not getting it. You're not getting it? No, I don't. He's saying African-Americans vote just as much as Americans. Oh! Oh, I feel so stupid! Oh, the man! Oh, 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 God. That took me way too long. (laughs) Jesus. I was like, because for some reason, when you were saying black Americans and Americans, for some reason, I was like, in my head, I was inserting white Americans. Like, I was inserting yeah. the word white Americans. But then you said, Amer-. he didn't say white Americans. He just said Americans. <gasps> yeah. It's the thing that, like, you've, you've internalized the racism. You know, the, the default American is a white American. Oh, my God. Holy shit. Oh my god. He really did separate the groups. He's mm-hmm. he really separated them. Jesus Christ. Never corrects himself, by the way. Did someone bring it up? I I don't know. I don't know if they ever brought I I just saw the 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 clip on Twitter, then I was like, I have to see the whole thing. I I cannot believe that this man, this fucking Kentucky senator 
said this and never corrected himself. Damn. And I watched the whole thing. And, and the fact it that it took does. me so long, because in my head, I was like, black Americans and white Americans. That's that's how I read it. You're like, that black Americans are voting just as much as white Americans. That's what I was hearing in my head. And then I was like, wait a second. It, it, I was like, looking at, I was like, paying attention to every word. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. But that, that's, that's the effect of, of how normal they've made the idea that Americans are white. Yeah. You know? Like well, I was, I told you before, like I was at a, I was, you know, I used to substitute teach uh-huh. and there were these kids that were, were asking me what nationality I was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm American because I was born here. And then one of them say, you're not, you don't look American. Yeah. And I'm like, well, were you born? They, they said, I'm not American. And I'm like, well, you were born in America. That makes you American. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm Mexican. And I was like, well, what? What do, what do Americans look like? And he's like, white. So sad. Dude, this is exactly what we this is exactly what we're talking about in the Grace Lee Project. The exact same thing that we were talking about in the Grace Lee Project, where it was like that white culture is the dominant culture. And it, in America And that's the way they want to keep it. Yeah, exactly. That's why that's why when people say black lives matter, they they start getting their guns, they start putting their fucking black american flag with the blue line mm-hmm. they start saying all lives matter you know what i mean well it's it's funny because it's like you're misrepresenting the line or maybe misrepresenting it but you're also just misunderstanding where that comes from but it's like no 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 see all lives matter and it's like no we're not saying that we're not saying that your lives don't matter but it's 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 just that black people have been ignored for so long do you know what i mean mm-hmm. and, and it it is it is sad how we keep coming back to these things, you know, how that kid, mm-hmm. how the child, you know, began the uh, the Chicago race riots and kind of um, how that just sounds like wait that just sounds like a familiar story, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? Rodney King, you know, um, so many so many people like we go down the list of names, you know, Trayvon Martin, Ahmaud Arbery, yeah, George Floyd, Flandro Castle. Like this keeps happening mm-hmm. and it will keep happening because people will ignore it. You know, people will, will see black lives matter and get upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Misha was, was a brave filmmaker for putting stuff, stuff like this out. You know what I mean? To, for wanting to show what, what the reality was like, you know? And I mean, he was doing this, Back when things were even worse. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm surprised this man was not killed. But I mean, it, it, it was totally possible for like a Southern theater owner to see this and be so infuriated. And it was like, you know what? I'm just going to, we can't be having someone that makes films like this. You know what I mean? Violent. Yeah. But he, but, but I, to, to touch on something that I mentioned earlier, he was also, he also, he was kind of putting the mirror to everyone's face, including black people. And it's like, Hey, like, this is like, we are capable of some awful things as well. You know, Ephraim, mm-hmm. for example, and granted Ephraim, Ephraim was doing it for, for self-conservation. But I mean, he was one of the reasons the laundry, the Landry family died or he was the reason they died. Also that he can position himself amongst other white people Mm -hmm. but at the end you know they don't have any problems lynching him 
They had no problem. They were quick to it too. They just did it because they were bored, and yeah. the mob was angry. Yeah, this was a this is a tough film. I mean, it, it was you know, I I I thoroughly enjoyed watching the film. Granted, all the horrible things that happened in it, it was a suspenseful film. Um, but watching it nowadays, yeah, it still has the same impact that I imagine that a lot of films that we've seen have. You know, it you you kind of can't stop thinking about it and going through it, and especially from a modern from from the modern times, it's just like going back. It's like, yeah, this same old shit. And people were concerned about this movie because, like, oh, we just had those Chicago race riots. This will incite people to violence, and it was banned in the South. But it's not trying to incite people you know it's just showing showing us the reality it's based in truth Mm -hmm. meanwhile five years earlier you had birth of a nation a movie that was trying to incite violence Mm -hmm. it was trying to recruit people for the kkk and it was screened at the white house the first movie ever screened at the white house yeah and it did incite riots. There were there were white people looking around for black kids to kill. One of them was killed. What the fuck, dude? It's... I don't mean. But love your country, you know. Jesus Christ! I mean, I don't know. I don't know why he wrote that. I mean, I. Very out of left field, but outside of that, uh, in, enjoyable film, um, very topical, and I rec- I recommend it to our listeners. Um, you know, it's it's not uh, by conventional standards, it's not the easiest film to watch. You know, but if you want a slice of history, uh, I recommend it. This is the second feature length film by one of the first black filmmakers in the U.S. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know about worldwide. That's a lot harder to pin down. But in the U.S., this was the second feature film from the from one of the first black filmmakers. That like, and this is the film that survived. We can't go back and see the Homesteader, the, the his directorial debut, the one that put him on the map. So yeah, and this isn't the <laughs> this wasn't preserved by the states either. Not until the seventies when they found it in Spain. Mm-hmm. This was somehow maintained in Spain, a movie or a, a country that is depicted as the enemy towards the end of the movie. <laughs> so really interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, do you want to move on to our quotes or is there some? One last final thing. I tried finding a little bit about this, but I couldn't find too much about it. But apparently, so people are trying to, they're trying to talk about Oscar Mishaw a little bit more. Like the Academy has a section dedicated to him, which is incredible. And it's the reason that we we talked about this movie today. Exactly. So a few years ago, the Academy was under fire a lot for uh, Oscar So White, you know, and they're trying to definitely diversify their education, their filmmaking history, their film history education. And I mean, we learned about Oscar Mishaw because of because of them uh, and I don't know too much about this, but I think more people are going to hear about Oscar Mishaw because apparently HBO was making a biopic about Oscar wow. Mishaw. Wow. What? Do you know who his stars, though? Tell me. Tyler Perry. 
Hmm. I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> I don't like a lot of Tyler Perry stuff, but at the same time, he's employing so many other black people to make movies. Well, he created his own studio in Atlanta. Yeah. Tyler Perry has a them picking Tyler Perry is conflicting a little bit because I think he's a, I think he I think he could act very well. Oh yeah, when his dramatic roles. I love them in Gone Girl. And he's directed a lot of stuff. He's written a lot of stuff. If you compare his story to Michaud's, it's, I mean, not too far off. I mean, different era. But, I mean, he is a billionaire. He created his own studio, same as Michaud. He started off, uh, you know, as a, uh, I believe, as a uh, playwright. I think that's how Tyler Perry started. Um, he started writing, same as Michaud. So, a lot of similarities there. I just, I, I know Tyler Perry has, I can't speak to it personally because I haven't seen too many of Tyler Perry's films but I do know that he has come under fire for some of his characters that he's created some of the depictions that he's yeah had black people be in uh like Medea a lot of people have said that Medea kind of plays on black stereotypes you know yeah uh and some people just don't like it you know some people have said it's like a minstrel show um so I mean there's and, and, and on the other side, I know some black people love these movies. Like they have done well mm. in the box office. So clearly mm. there is an appeal to black audiences for that. But again, others have felt, ah, is this the best? Is this good for, is this good representation for us? I, I don't know. I can't say on it too much. I haven't, I've never seen a Medea film, but I thought that was really interesting. Tyler Perry playing Oscar Michaud is like kind of a multi-layered thing. It's like, oh, wow, there's... There's a lot in this, actually, like, like, you know, like contextually. However, I have not heard about this biopic or much of it. So it was announced in 2017. It's 2022. Oh. It shouldn't take that long to make, but it has not come out. And I checked Tyler Perry's IMDb and it is not in his upcoming roles. So he was oh. at, he's acting in it. I don't think it says too much about him. Uh he he's set to star and executive produce, but nothing has come from it in the past mm. five years. So I don't know. No release date Oof. is set yet for this biopic, and might be dead on arrival. But I thought I thought it was a really interesting concept to to do a biopic on Oscar Michaud. You ready to move on to our quotes? Yes, awesome. I feel like our quotes will be the same thing. Oh, okay. Go for you. Start off this one. All right. So at the end of our episodes, we like to summarize how we feel about the movie based off of a quote from the movie. It could be our favorite quote. It could represent how, how we felt about the movie itself. Or it could be like one that like just stuck with us. Um, my quote is the first title card in the movie. Uh, it is, At the opening of our drama, we find our characters in the North where the prejudices and hatreds of the South do not exist. Though, this does not prevent the occasional lynching of a Negro. And I thought that, like, this quote is pretty much the movie in a nutshell, you know, because she goes to the North, she, she gets the money, she helps her, her students in the South, but there is that looming threat that she's not welcome in, in this country. My quote is not that one, but it's pretty similar. Uh, it was Sylvia. And uh, she says it to the teacher. And it's like, it is my duty and the duty of each member of our race to help destroy ignorance and the superstition 
I'm going to go up north where I'll try to raise the money we need. May God be with us. Um, at that moment, I really felt like Michelle was speaking to her or through her, or mm-hmm. he related a lot to Sylvia. You know what I mean? Because he, yeah, definitely. He he was educated. He was able to work a lot, and he did not let the things happening at the time stop him. You know, he persevered. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this life, this man had a tough life, but he persevered and he worked really hard. And he thought education was one of the biggest things that black people needed. You know, he was a huge proponent of that. That's why the whole central plot of this story is about education. And at that moment, that was a quote where I was like, oh, Masha feels this 100%. Yeah. The ending quotes by Dr. Vivian. Maybe it might have been Michelle kind of speaking through Dr. Vivian. It might have been that he needed to kind of write this to get the film released. I, who knows? We can only speculate. Um, but that was a weird thing to end on. But this quote very much feels like, oh, he, this is his goal. This is what this was his life mission. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To to help destroy ignorance and the superstition. And I think he did that well. And he inspired a bunch of other filmmakers to do the exact same thing, including Spike Lee, who said that Oscar Michaud was one of his heroes, that he got into filmmaking because of Oscar Michaud. So, you know, I think he succeeded. I think he did a great job. And I definitely recommend this film 100%. 100%. I agree. Um, so that's about it for this episode of the podcast thank you so much for listening um you can find us on social media at retrograde underscore pod on twitter and instagram and we have a facebook facebook apparently does podcasts now so if you want to listen to us on facebook you can do that uh i don't know if they have an app or anything i don't know how convenient that would be but we're also on spotify and itunes and we would really appreciate um subscribing there giving us five stars and all that because it helps people find the podcast we also post some of our shorts uh, our like little videos on youtube uh retrograde podcast three words there and we have a discord where we talk about games we talk about movies and sometimes we'll do stuff together so dm us if you want to be invited to our discord we haven't decided about what we're doing next week. Huh? We or have we a film episode. that we've been wanting to talk about is the court jester. I want to bring in a guest for that. Uh, see if he's available. There is another film that I kind of want to talk about. That is a big film, and it is it is celebrating a huge anniversary this year. So I don't know. I don't want to spoil it in case we don't do it. Oh my god. So that's something that you and I will have to talk about. But it, I, we're going to have a great episode next one. We're going to have a great episode. Yeah, and on the next episode, we will be talking about our Patreon because we have it. We have the Patreon name. And I feel like if if any of our listeners out there want to support us like financially, you know, the podcast will always be free, you know. But if you want to support us financially, we can maybe put some stuff up there. We're thinking of doing like a modern grade series where we talk about a contemporary movie. So we'll be talking about that in our next episode. It's going to be like a low amount just to get to that, get to those episodes. 
Um, and then like a higher amount, if you've got like some disposable income that you want to spend on us, we'd be so appreciative of that. So more on that on the next episode. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. Hope to see you in the next one. All right. See ya. See ya.